I think it goes back to just this primitive thing of gathering around a fire. Mm -hmm. Everyone circling the hearth and coming together over like a big feast or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. We all have to eat every day, but the thing that makes food really fun is when you eat with other people Mm -hmm. and when you come together at a table. We all know we need to eat food in order to, you know, physically live. But Sola L. Whaley thinks about food in a much deeper way. She sees food not just as a way to fill your body with nutrients, but as a way to be creative, to engage with culture, and to bring people together. She's written recipes for Bon Appetit and the New York Times cooking section, been honored as one of the Time 100 Next in 2021, served as a guest editor of the 2022 edition of the Best American Food Writing Anthology, and hosts her own cooking show on the History Channel. And her new cookbook, Start Here, aims to help new cooks find their way in the kitchen to help food become more than just something to eat. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. El Whaley joined us just a few weeks after giving birth to her first child, and frankly, I was shocked and thrilled that she was able to make it into our studio. I'm honestly so impressed that you're here and that you're like out in the world because <laughs> when I had my baby, I was like, mm, no, I'm not leaving my apartment for two months. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. It was winter also, and it was also like the depths of COVID. So it was a little bit of a different situation, mm-hmm. but you're a hero for being here and doing this. Well, that was my original plan. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to do a solid six weeks. And then after one week, I was like, like, I need to do something. Yeah, I was just trying to feel like a food machine. Yep. Yep. Mentally, it's quite an adjustment. It's like a full-time job. And it's also physically and psychologically exhausting. Yeah. So Um, I like being able to like pop out and be a person again. And then I'll go back. And that's why I'm late. As I was going out the door, I was like, oh, crap, I have to pump. (laughs) Here's the thing. New moms are never late, whatever time they arrive. Also, new moms don't have to write thank you notes. It's Oh, I love that. Yeah. I've got so many gifts and I'm like, oh, I need to take t- the time no, to do this. No, legally you don't have to actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for letting me know. That's <laughs> cool. Um, so I'm curious, do you have any go-to new mom recipes? Well, I'm really lucky because my husband's a chef. <laughs> wow. So new mom recipe, marry a chef. Marry a chef. <laughs> okay. Um, so you grew up in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. How did growing up in that specific place influence your attitude towards food? It's an amazing experience to be able to be around so much diversity. You know, in the moment, it was just like, this is how we eat and this is how we live. So I didn't realize it was special, but I realize now how special it was. Just grocery shopping. My mom would always go to like five different stores every Mm. time. Like there was this Persian store where we got cheese. And then we'd always go to the Korean store for fish and then the Japanese store for rice. And there was this amazing Mexican grocery store. I think it's called Vallarta's. Mm -hmm. And they always had fresh masa. Wow. So even though I grew up eating Bangladeshi food primarily, my mom would incorporate masa into our meals and oxtails and like whatever she could find, wherever she could find it. So it was really cool to just be so immersed in so many different cultures. And so tell me about the Bangladeshi food that your mom would make. What kind of recipes did you learn from her? What was that like to sort of learn about food from her? Well, my mom 
made Bangladeshi food, but it was like LA Bangladeshi. So it oh, was very much influenced by the ingredients she could find. Because especially back then, she couldn't find a lot of the ingredients she grew up cooking and eating. So she adapted with what she could find. And there was still so much. So it never felt like anything was missing. You know, that's why I don't like the word authentic. Oh, interesting. It it wasn't like, quote unquote, like Bangladeshi authentic. It was authentic to the place where we were. So why don't you like the word authentic? I feel like that's something people talk about all the time when they talk about food. Well, like, what does that even mean? Yeah, exactly. You know, food is always changing. Even if you're staying in one place, even the food in Bangladesh, I go so infrequently, like 10 years will pass and it's completely different. Like the food scene there is constantly evolving. The food scene here is constantly evolving because people are always moving through places. So calling something authentic, it's just, it's not true. I was recently working on a project where we were studying tteokbokki. It's the Korean chewy rice cakes Okay, that are in like, nowadays you often find it in this spicy gochujang sauce. Right, yes. Um, but traditionally it was not in a spicy sauce at all. Like traditionally uh. chilies weren't even a part of Korean cuisine until like pretty recently, relatively, you know, in terms of history, like yeah. maybe 400 years ago. It's like interesting now how people have this idea that, oh, tteokbokki has to be like in this spicy gochujang sauce, even though chilies and gochujang are relatively new to that cuisine. So there's no such thing as like authentic. That's super interesting. So when you were growing up and it seems like still today, your parents owned and operated a Baskin Robbins. Yeah, they're never going to stop working. Okay, so (laughs) tell me about that. It seems like you kind of like grew up in and around this Baskin Robbins. What was that like? They got the first store when I was eight. So my whole life, basically, I remember being around it. After school, I'd always go there and I'd hang out in the back room. And my first job was breaking down boxes, which is a very important job. Very important. You can't be throwing out unbroken boxes. Yeah. Did you have a favorite flavor of the 31 flavors? Then and now it's still mint chocolate chip. Huh. And I think that nobody does it right. Except Baskin Robbins and Jenny's. Okay. What do you think is the perfect mint chocolate chip? I think it has to be green. Huh. I I know it's like totally like a brain thing, you know, but okay. if it's not green, it doesn't taste minty to me. I don't care how minty it is. I want a little touch of artificial coloring in there. But the other thing are the chips. Oh, what do the chips have to be? I like the, what Jenny's and Baskin Robbins does right is the chips are really small and fine. I like the tiny ripples of chocolate running throughout. So you get like chocolate in every mouthful and it dissolves really fast because it's small mm. and delicate. See, I feel like I'm maybe on the other side of this debate because I I like a chunk myself. I think more people agree with you because very few people sell it with the little chips. Yeah, you're right. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the traditional ways that people used to learn how to cook. They used to learn how to cook from their families, you know? (laughs) They used to be there while their parents were cooking or their family members were cooking, and it was something that— You know, sometimes I talk to people, particularly older people, who say they never even necessarily learned how to cook. They just sort of observed their mothers or their grandmothers or their fathers or whoever was cooking, and they kind of learned it through osmosis almost. And some of those traditional avenues of, like, food information have been kind of disrupted. So how do you think food media and recipe developers have sort of replaced some of those traditional ways that people used to learn how to cook? Well, you know, I think with— how much food 
information there is out there, there's like good and bad to it. Yeah. When I was growing up, I learned primarily how to cook from my mom and I had like three cookbooks and they didn't have photos. (laughs) Oh my God. Wow. And I was just like looking at these recipes over and over again and making them and messing up. I remember the first time I made gumbo, I didn't know what a roux was, which is a mixture of like fat and flour. And it's kind of the heart of gumbo. So I just left it out. (laughs) (laughs) So then it's like just a soup. It was just a soup and it was delicious and I didn't know any better. So like there was a good to it in that because there wasn't so many visual examples and there weren't a lot of expectations. I was just cooking and I was just trying and I was failing, but it didn't matter because I was alone. I wasn't trying to live up to a photograph or a video I saw. But like on the flip side, I think it is so amazing how you can learn so much about food from so many different people across the globe now. Yeah. There's so much knowledge out there. And if you really are motivated, you can teach yourself so much. So I feel like cooking has sort of evolved in some ways. And we're like at this very interesting moment with cooking right now where like food is at once so important to people. And yet so many people still find cooking like so inaccessible. So. Tell me a little bit about Start Here and why you decided to write this book. Well, I think that cooking feels really scary, especially now because there's so much food content Mm -hmm. that looks so glamorized and so pretty and so perfect. And the fact is what you as a viewer don't know is like how many hours did it take for someone to make that? How many takes? How many tries? Oh, that's interesting. So when you make an egg at home and it's not perfect, it's easy to be discouraged. Yes, Right, you know, you bake a cake and it's lopsided. And I think that we're forgetting that food's not supposed to be beautiful all the time. It's supposed to be nourishing. And with the book, I really want to give people the techniques they need so that they can cook nourishing meals for themselves. Not Mm. necessarily with a recipe or a cookbook, because if you want to become someone who cooks every day, you got to streamline it for yourself. You don't want to pull out measuring cups all the time and you don't want to have to make a detailed grocery list. You want to be able to go into your fridge, see what you have and make a meal. Right. So the goal of the book is to teach you techniques Hmm. first. And then the recipes are there to help you practice those techniques. And then ultimately the goal is that you go away with this deeply ingrained knowledge so that you can cook from your intuition. Like I want to build your culinary intuition so that you can just cook freely every day. So what I think is really interesting about Start Here is that the recipes kind of run the gamut of cuisines. You have recipes from all over the globe. Why was it important to you to cast such a wide net? You know, I didn't do that intentionally. Huh. (laughs) For me, I was trying to work with a small pantry as much as possible Mm -hmm. because I didn't want you to buy a whole bunch of stuff for like a beginner's cookbook. Yeah. But I just want to show you how much fun you can have with a small pantry. Like lemons, Everyone's got lemons. Lemons are everywhere. And there's like so many cool things to do with lemons in the book. A couple of my favorite recipes highlight lemons. There's a charred lemon risotto. Risotto traditionally, like it's all about the stock, but Mm -hmm. good broth is quite expensive and time consuming to make. So I just deeply char the lemons to give you that like umami savory Mm -hmm. backbone without any stock. Hmm. And lemons are an easy ingredient you can find anywhere. And then there's like this really cool lemony potato recipe. And if you're going to make any recipe first, I think you should make that one. It's really inspired by the Greek lemony potatoes, but it's not quite those because okay. those need like the high intensive, like a grill or a, a kitchen yeah. broiler. But this recipe was actually pretty difficult to develop because it is just like lemon butter potatoes. 
And it's all just about the ratios and the seasoning. Mm. So you cook the potatoes covered with a lot of lemon and a lot of butter until it's really nice and tender. And then you uncover it and char it and finish with even more lemon. Yum. And like, it's really all about balancing all of that acidity with butter and salt. Oh my God. So don't be scared of all the butter. You're going to need it. So how long does it take you to perfect one of these recipes? You know, it really varies and you never know. Mm -hmm. Like something like the lemon potatoes, I thought would be like super easy, maybe two tries. And it ended up being one of the harder ones. Wow. So what is harder? Like 10 tries? Yeah, like 10 tries. Okay. Okay. (laughs) What about Bengali cooking? Do you incorporate any techniques from Bengali cooking into these recipes? Well, I think that the interesting thing with Bengali cooking and like South Asian in general or Mm -hmm. anywhere you use spices is the way you layer spices. Huh. Like what? Well, like let's say you're using turmeric, cumin, and coriander in a dish. You don't just add it once. Like you might start with some spices in the oil before Mm -hmm. you add anything else. Hmm. And that's going to really extract the oil-soluble flavors. And you're going to let it cook in that flavorful oil braise for a long time. And then you might finish the dish again with like those spices that are whole and sizzled and fat and poured on top. You know, I think it's really interesting using one thing a couple of times in a couple of ways to really layer flavors and like make something really complex, even though you're just using those three Hmm. spices. So... To your mind, how much of cooking is about ambition and how much of it is about ease? I like both. I love a project, you know, like if it's a Sunday or even a whole weekend, like one of my favorite things to do is to just make mole negro. And my husband and I will turn it into our whole weekend. We'll go to the store and get all of the dried chilies. And then every single ingredient has to be toasted or fried separately and then blended and then it's cooked down and then it splatters everywhere. you got to scrub down your wow. whole kitchen. And Wait, so what is mole negro? Can you oh, explain it? Um, it's Mexican. It's like one of their mother sauces. It's like a black reddish okay. hue. There's a lot of different kinds of mole in Mexico and they're all so complex and mm. so flavorful. Mole negro is one of the more common ones that you might see and it has a lot of like toasted chilies and dried fruit and yeah. fried plantains and fried tortillas and it all cooks together. It's really all about understanding how to balance those like bitter and spicy and sweet mm. flavors into something harmonious. And it takes a really long time and it's really difficult and I love making it. Yeah. So I'm curious how you think about sort of food and culture in this context. Because in the last couple of years, there has been a little bit of conversation around which recipes are sort of like indigenous to certain cultures and to what extent people from outside those cultures can like Uh master them. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, okay. I think everyone should make everything. Okay. 100%. That's something that's really frustrated me in my career Mm -hmm. that when I first started, people would look at me and just want me to make Bengali food. And it's like, no, I want to make everything. Right. And a lot of chefs have been historically allowed to make whatever they want while other chefs haven't. But this conversation, I think... It's missing the point. Mm -hmm. It's about how you present something. Mm -hmm. Like, are you going to make something and pretend like you invented it when it's belonged to a culture for hundreds of years? Right. That's a problem. Yeah. And also, if you are profiting from it without acknowledging the origins. But like you as a home cook, make whatever the hell you want. That's not, that's (laughs) not cultural appropriation. But if you're a prolific recipe developer working for a big platform and you're making mole negro and acting like you invented it and you're calling it chili sauce, that's a problem. 
more with chef and cookbook author Sola L. Whaley about what she's learned from the food world and how it's changing when we come back. So you write in the introduction of this book, quote, my confidence in the kitchen comes from failing. In the beginning, I failed a lot and it's nothing to be afraid of. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What were the things that you really failed at in the kitchen? And do you still feel like you fail in the kitchen? I mean, I fail all the time. And throughout my life, I failed in like small and big ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's scary at first. And I think the more you fail, the less scary it is. So, you know, when I first started cooking, I failed by like making a cheesecake that didn't set up or a turkey that was raw in the middle. Mm-hmm. But then I've had like bigger failures, like having a restaurant close or dropping out of college. Mm-hmm. And when those things happen, I did get really scared. And a lot of people told me like my life was over. People told me I should leave New York. And like you get over it and you move past it and you keep going and it just teaches you that it'll be fine. I'll get over it. Yeah. I, I've done harder things. Do you think that there are lessons you've learned from cooking that have helped you deal with those failures? Well, the best thing about cooking is you always got to eat so you can try again. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I think that's exactly right. So you worked at some top-tier restaurants in New York, like Del Posto, Battersby, Momofuku, Pak Pak. And a lot of people are talking about this Hulu series, The Bear, now. And people Mm -hmm. are very obsessed with, like, what life is like in the kitchen and people are saying like, yes, chef to one another. I'm curious what your experience was like working in those kitchens and whether it was as glamorous as people seem to think. Well, first of all, I haven't seen the bear yet because I'm afraid to. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. Why are you afraid? I don't know. People keep telling me it's stressful and I was like, I don't want to welcome that into my life. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Maybe maybe later, like when the baby starts to sleep. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. But I don't think there's anything glamorous about working in a restaurant. If people think that there is, they will be very disappointed. Most of your life working in a restaurant is just being in a basement, peeling onions. You go home and you smell like stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You have very little free time. I think that's the biggest thing. When working in a restaurant, my husband and I never saw each other because you work 12 hours a day, like minimum often more. And then you add your commute. And then at the end of the day, you're so physically and mentally exhausted that all you can handle doing is drink. I I drank a lot during that time. And I think about it now and how bad it was. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just like, you kind of have to, because there's no way to really decompress after that much like intense physical and emotional work. There is something amazing about it. Like I really do love working such a long day where you're working so much that you don't have time to think about anything else. You tune out the world. You know, the only thing in your mind is getting your station set up and getting ready for service. And then during service, the only thing on your mind is each dish that you're picking up in front of you. So you get into this flow that I really miss. You almost get a little bit high. You Mm. know, when you have a good service and the whole kitchen and front of house and back of house is in sync. Yeah. It's like the most incredible, amazing feeling ever. But it's also really, really, really hard. 
It seems really hard. And you and your husband, as you mentioned, you opened your own restaurant in Greenpoint called Hail Mary. What was that experience like? We learned a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, when I think about it now, I think about how little we knew, how naive we were when we were starting. First of all, we thought we could do it all ourselves without like a beverage manager, a front of house manager. We were trying to be like scrappy about it. We did all the design ourselves. We upholstered all the banquettes ourselves with fabric we found on the sidewalk of Greenpoint. And we thought that would be cool. And instead, like some of our first Yelp reviews were about how weird it was that none of the fabric matched. Like people noticed things that we never would have thought would have been an issue. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We thought we'd have time to like get our footing. And then the first reviewer, Gothamist, wrote a review about the restaurant after the cold open. Cold open, if you don't know, it's like when you're not even open yet and you're just testing things out. So we had like a week of cold open after the second day he wrote a review. So we didn't even have time to like get mm-hmm. going. So I, I don't think we realized how perfect you have to be right off the bat. There's like yeah. no room for error, especially now because of the internet, because everyone is a reviewer. Everyone's going to write about you, whether they're a professional or not. And you don't have any time to make any mistakes or any adjustments. We didn't have the resources to really take our time to recipe develop and plan. We just got in there and hit the ground and opened. Yeah. (laughs) And so then it closed after about a year, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think you took away from that experience that you might do differently if you were to ever open another restaurant? Well, you need a really big team. You need a good team. You can't do it all yourself. And you need to listen to the people around you. We were really uh, headstrong and wanted it to be exactly how we wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And It was very fun to make a restaurant that was exactly what we wanted. And we changed dishes like every single day. We were like peak creative at that time. But that's not good for business because customers want stability. Right. So I think if we were to do it again, we would just be a lot more like thoughtful and patient and gather a big team and listen to them and like step back and not have it be all about like satisfying your creative needs. So... There have been so many eras in food culture, you know, from Julia Child to the Mark Bittman era of like how to cook everything kind of. And there was the Joy of Cooking era that was a little before that. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of Alison Roman pandemic era (laughs) was a moment. Do you think there's been a vibe shift recently in the food world, like in the last couple of years? And what do you think is the new food vibe? I don't know. I think that maybe the new vibe is there's so much out there that anyone can find their person. So I don't feel like there's like any one big personality. Yeah. That is kind of like what's cool about a lot of what's happening, not just in food, but in like music and television and movies. There's so much out there that there isn't like one thing everyone's watching or listening to or cooking. Everyone can find their niche. That's super interesting. And do you feel like we're in a different moment I'm just particularly thinking about the pandemic. Like people were so in their homes and they were making Mm -hmm. their bread and they were spending (laughs) like 15 hours on a cake or something. What do you think post-pandemic food culture is going to be like? What do you think people are looking for in their relationship to cooking? Well, I think there's this group that is much more appreciative of people who work in the food industry. Hmm. Restaurants and recipe developers, they understand how much work goes into it now because they've washed a lot of dishes. And then there's the other side of people who think they know everything now and they're (laughs) even harder on you. Oh, (laughs) wow. That's so interesting. Just from speaking to my friends who are still in the industry, it seems like 
a lot of the treatment towards front of house staff by customers is worse for some reason. There's like a weird entitlement mm-hmm. vibe. A lot of the worst of it happens to the hosts because they're the first point of contact. Right. So, you know, it doesn't sound like there's improvement from the customers, but it does sound like there is improvement with the managers because a lot of the people who are running kitchens now are like part of this new wave trying to do it differently. I'm curious if you feel like there's like a new cohort of chefs and food creators coming up and recipe developers. Do you feel like there's a new guard of other people like you who are sort of breaking open the food world a little bit? I mean, there's a lot of people right now who I think are doing interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. What I think is great is they're not working with like a large media company. They're doing it on their own Hmm. because the audience now can pick who they want to see. And there's more people who might not have gotten a platform. Like one of my favorite creators right now is Alexis Nicole, the Hmm. Black Forager. And and I learned so much from every single one of her videos and she's doing it totally on her own. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if something as niche as like foraging could have gotten such a big audience if she had to go through like a big media conglomerate or something like that. That's interesting. Do you feel like the big food media conglomerates I feel like they're almost obsolete at this point for exactly the reason that you say. Like, food creators can go straight to their audience. So what do you think would be the role of a food media conglomerate, given that food creators don't even need them? Well, it kind of seems like it's working in the reverse. Like, people are getting really popular on their own. Like, another person I love is Carolina Galen. Mm-hmm. Um, Like, people like her are doing really well on their own. And then the food media is just trying to keep up and trying to produce content like them or produce content with them. Um, I I do think they might be obsolete soon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like, listen, social media is changing all forms of media, not just the food media. So Mm -hmm. that wouldn't surprise me. Mm -hmm. So what's next for you after this book comes out? I don't know. Yeah. I'm working on another book, but I'm going to kind of take my time on that because I can like work on a book, you know, slowly. Totally. Intermittently. Yeah, definitely. So we've spoken so much about all that you've done to shape the food world, but now we want to ask you a couple questions that look at some of the everyday things that shape you. And this is a segment we like to call the last time. Okay. When is the last time you cooked your favorite recipe and what is it? Um, wow, this is hard. I love making pie. Okay. And I made a pie this summer with some of those fabulous sour cherries. Oh my God. Favorite thing is to do sour cherry pies during sour cherry season. And I love that they're only around for two weeks. It makes it extra special. Yeah. Um, when is the last time you injured yourself in the kitchen? Oh, it's been a while. Oh, I'm going to cut myself today now that I said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When's the last time you dressed up for Halloween and what were you? Last Halloween, Ham and I dressed up as Bob and Linda from Bob's Burgers. That's a very good costume. When's the last time you just gave up and ordered in? Last week. (laughs) (laughs) What did you order? We got no sleep. We ordered from Domo Domo, hand-roll place. Fantastic. I love that place. Yeah. Um, When's the last time you had fast food? Um, I was really craving McDonald's during my pregnancy, so I got some chicken nuggets, french fries. Delicious. Perfect. Sola, thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Sola El Whaley's cookbook, Start Here, Instructions for Becoming a Better Cook, 
will be on shelves starting October 31st, wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we really love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Bob Mallory. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Michael Erlinger and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.